So today we're going to go over uh, a book, a very influential book, called Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Mattered by E.F. Schumacher. This book was first published in 1973. The book that launched a thousand tiny house co-op communes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, we reference this a lot in our work uh, because it's an influential book and we'd like to take you down the path of E.F. Schumacher's strange brain and teach you about the basically what the book is about, who E.F. Schumacher was, the context in which he arose, because I think it's fundamental in understanding the current degrowth eco-fascist movement, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a third way book because... yeah. And we talk about it a lot in shorthand. And whenever you talk to energy people and agriculture people and people that are just interested in how society is organized, like-minded people to us, they will identify, oh, that's, you know, that's small as beautiful thinking. It's bullshit. And people always refer to it, but nobody really pins down what is said in the book. Right. And I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's that much information out there about what was the impact of this book. And I, I think what we're going to find as we as we go through it is that it's something that, you know, it was a mass market book that came out in the 70s. Yeah. It was something that, you know, every like disaffected, you know, future yuppie who was laying on the beach in Cape Cod, you know, <laughs> after. Yeah. I mean, it's basically like like bread tube, but for the, the 1970s. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like it's, it's eat, a... pray, love for yuppies. Yeah. It's like this little, um, you know, I have a copy of it for, that was actually published in 1975 that Alex found in a used bookshop. And it's it's like this little beach reader book. So it's obviously it's targeted for people who kind of want to dip their toe into something that's going to challenge them, that's going to sort of tickle them, tickle their uh, sense of, I don't know, dissidence or or tap into... People, it, it, it's for people who are kind of primed to f- be looking for answers in this yeah. this this world that is just not not living up to the expectations. It's for powerful people that think they're the smartest person in the room, but <laughs> everyone thinks that they're an idiot. I'm yeah, I, I think it mostly took root in more powerful people, obviously, but I think also. Upper middle class people too yeah. are just kind of oh the why is the world the way it is kind of but before we get too, in, too much into that let's let's basically give people a rundown of the book because as we said it's mentioned a lot but we should really discuss what it is you know that we're talking about so in this in my 1975 edition I found a very special introduction that I could not find online. Um, so I'm going to actually read quite a bit of this introduction uh, because I think that it frames out what the book is really well and kind of says some of the quiet parts loud. So this is an introduction written by a guy named Theodore Rozak. So Rozak was an, an academic and a novelist, briefly was an editor for a pacifist magazine called Peace News, which was started in 1936. And an interesting sidebar about Peace News. The entry on Peace News in Wikipedia has a a few interesting tidbits. Some contributors were so sympathetic to the grievances of Nazi Germany that one skeptical member found it difficult to distinguish between letters 
to Peace News and those in the newspaper of the British Union of Fascists. The historian Mark Gilbert has argued that, with the exception of Action, the Journal of the British Union of Fascists, it's hard to think of another British newspaper which was so consistent an apologist for Nazi Germany as Peace News. But it's called Peace News. Yeah, it's called he Peace, peace. Our Palm Dutt refers to these people as the passive reactionary, specifically referring to people like Gandhi. But anyways, so the introduction I'll read quite a bit of. So here are the here's the introduction by Theodore Rozak. For those whom economics mean, a book filled with numbers, charts, graphs, and formulae, together with much heady discussion of abstract technicalities, like the balance of payments and gross national product, this remarkable collection of essays is certain to come as either a shock or a relief. E.F. Schumacher's economics is not part of the dominant style. On the contrary, his deliberate intention to subvert economic science by calling its every assumption into question right down to its psychological and metaphysical foundations. Perhaps this sounds like a project that only a brash amateur would take on, but this book is the work of as professional and experienced an economist as any who bears the credentials of the guild. Schumacher has been a Rhodes Scholar in economics, an economic advisor to the British Control Commission in post-war Germany, and for 20 years prior in 19, to 1971, the top economist and head of planning at the British Coal Board. So that's a little background on E.F. Schumacher. Um, he, Rozak goes on to list Schumacher's qualifications. Uh, he was president of the Soil Association, one of Britain's oldest organic farming organizations, the founder and chairman of the Intermediate Technology Development Group, which specializes in tailoring tools, small-scale machines, and methods of production to the needs of developing countries, a sponsor of the Fourth World Movement, a British-based campaign for political decentralization and regionalism, a director of the Scott Bader Company, a pioneering effort at common ownership and workers' control, a close student of Gandhi, nonviolence and ecology. So those are his qualifications. For more than two decades, Schumacher has been weaving his economics out of this offbeat constellation of interests and communities and giving his ideas away from the platform of peace, social justice, do-good, and third world organizations all over Europe. Well, he sounds like a great guy. <laughs> As all this should make clear, Schumacher's works belong to that subterranean tradition of organic and decentralist economics, whose major spokesmen include Prince Kropotkin, Gustav Landauer, Tolstoy, William Morris, Gandhi, Lewis Mumford, and most recently, Alex Comfort, Paul Goodman, and Murray Bookchin. It is the tradition we might call anarchism, if we mean by that much-abused word, a libertarian political economy that distinguishes itself from orthodox socialism and capitalism by insisting that the scale of organization must be treated as an independent and primary problem. The tradition, while closely affiliated with socialist values, nonetheless prefers mixed to pure economic systems. It is therefore hospitable to many forms of free enterprise and private ownership, provided always that the size of the 
private enterprise is not so large as to divorce ownership from personal involvement, which is, of course, now the rule in most of the world's administered capitalisms. Bigness is the nemesis of anarchism, whether the bigness is that of public or private bureaucracies, because from bigness comes impersonality, insensitivity, and lust to concentrate abstract power. Hence, Schumacher's title, Small is Beautiful. He might just as well have said, small is free, efficient, creative, enjoyable, enduring, for such is the anarchist faith. So already we're starting to see themes, right? That bigness is the nemesis of anarchism, for such is the anarchist faith. This line of thinking that Schumacher is bringing to the table is anarchism. He doesn't he doesn't bring up anarchism in the book at all, but which makes it interesting, which makes this uh, intro like very revealing that the book the book is like a, a word soup of dancing around anarchism, right? And just saying that everything that you don't like is because it's big, is big, <laughs> and everything that's bad about uh, communism and capitalism and everything in between, it's bad because it's big, right? If it was small, then it would be better. Right. That's that smallness is the solution that it's not it's not capitalism versus socialism, which was, you know, in the context of his time, he's in the middle smack dab in the middle of the Cold War, the, the post World War Two era where the two major superpowers are the U.S. and the USSR. There's this supposed battle of ideologies between capitalism and socialism. And, uh, yeah, Schumacher is offering, he, he's being an enlightened centrist, right? He's trying to appeal to people who say, you know what? I see flaws in both these systems and, and that is anarchism <laughs> yep. and that is third way anarchism. Yeah. I'll say too, like the thing that I think about most of the anarchism, I know this is from Twitter, but this idea that modern anarchists, when you talk to them, they just believe that everything is voluntaristic, that the things that you need in society are just going to happen. Right. They don't, we don't need organization. We don't need a plan. Uh, it's just, oh, people that want to make insulin, they're going to make insulin because they really like to make insulin. It's going to grow off the insulin tree and you just have to go yeah. pick it off the tree. Or the, the technology that you need to, to do, let's say, solar panels. The rare earth minerals are simply going to be in the rare earth mineral dumpster <laughs> and you can dumpster dive. Yeah. And then the, peop the hobbyists, you know, the solar punk uh, hobbyists are just going to make free renewable energy for everyone. And nobody will have to mine anything or uh, do anything to get the, the rare earth mineral. It really is like a parasitic, uh, immature, childlike ideology that says that we can just we can just live off of what already exists. Yeah. Uh, we don't actually have to be adults and work to build society with everyone else. We can just, whatever already exists, we can just sort of yeah. parasite off of that. Yeah, and I think ultimately, like, of this book as we go into it i think that he was 20 years early on the end of history hmm. and because the but the running theme in the book is like well everything all the matters of production have been decided already and uh you're simply unhappy now because everything is too big and you're not doing enough real work out in the world and um that, that's why i think that this book took off so much is that he was early on that end of history thing and that sense of um emptiness that people felt so continuing, reaching backward, this tradition embraces communal, handicraft, tribal, guild, and village lifestyles as old as the Neolithic cultures. In that sense, 
It is not an ideology at all, but a wisdom gathered from historical experience. In our own time, it has reemerged spontaneously in the communitarian experiments and honest craftsmanship of the counterculture, where we find so many desperate and often resourceful efforts among young dropouts to make do in simple, free, and self-respecting ways amid the criminal waste and managerial congestion. How strange that this renewed interest in ancient ways of living and community should reappear even as our operations researchers begin to conceive their most ambitious dreams of cybernated glory. And yet how appropriate, for if there is to be a humanly tolerable world on this dark side of the emergent technocratic world system, it will surely have to flower for this still fragile renaissance of organic husbandry, communal households, and do-it-yourself techniques, whose first faint outlines we can trace through the pages of publications like Whole Earth Catalog, the Mother Earth News, and the People's Yellow Pages. And if that renaissance is to have an economist to make its case before the world, E.F. Schumacher is the man. Already his brilliant essay, Buddhist Economics, has become a much-read and often reprinted staple of the underground press. It would be no exaggeration to call him the Keynes of post-industrial society, by which I mean, and Schumacher means, a society that has left behind its lethal obsession with those very megasystems of production and distribution which Keynes tried so hard to make manageable. Well, I think this this paragraph really um, situates him in in context of his time, and I think this person wrote actually was even though he is bought he's totally bought into this stuff. He's right that Schumacher was very influential, yeah, and sort of picked up on these threads. Um, he mentions the whole Earth catalog, Mother Earth News. He was picking up on this trend where people were sort of disenchanted. Notice that he mentions Keynes, and uh, he positions Schumacher as the Keynes of post-industrial society. Now, it's very interesting when you look at Schumacher's life, his first prominent big break was getting the attention of Keynes in the uh, 30s and 40s when Schumacher was just a, a writer in England. You know, he was a, a refugee from Germany. And he got Keynes's attention um, and actually, you know, heavily influenced Keynes with his proposals for Bretton Woods and for orchestrating trade in the post-World War II world. And then sometime in the 50s, he totally, after Keynes dies and Keynes actually uh, anoints Schumacher as his intellectual heir, Schumacher makes this hard turn as he gets into Buddhism and he uh, is, you know, goes to the third world a couple of times. He just turns on Keynes and, you know, rebels against what's identified here as this kind of mega system of production, you know, this neoliberalism that Keynes helped shape. He rebels against it in a way that's, it's it's bad because it's big, not it's bad because it's irrationally planned. Right. The bigness is the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Again, yeah, again, that that, that theme comes up over and over. Obviously, the, the name of the book is Small is Beautiful, so the implication meaning that big is bad, yeah. right? Going back to Rozak's introduction. The first example of Schumacher's work I came across was an informal talk he gave in the mid-60s on the practicality of Gandhi's economic program in India. I was at the time editing a small pacifist weekly in London, Peace News, and was on the lookout for anything about Gandhi I could find. But here was a viewpoint I had never heard expounded even by ardent Gandhians, most of whom brushed over Gandhi's concern for village life and the spinning wheel, 
as if it were the once regrettable folly of an otherwise great and important man. Not so of Schumacher. Step by step, he spelled out the essential good sense of a third world economic policy that rejected imitation of Western models. Breakneck urbanization, heavy capital investment, mass production, centralized development planning, and advanced technology. In contrast, Gandhi's scheme was to begin with the villages to stabilize and enrich their traditional way of life by using the labor-intensive manufacture and handicrafts, and to keep the nation's economic decision-making as decentralized as possible, even if this slowed the pace of urban and industrial growth to a crawl. From the standpoint of conventional economics, this sounds like a prescription for starvation. And yeah. it was. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> My God, they said it. They just said it out loud. Well, I'll just say really quick the uh, the population, the inspiration for the population bomb by Ehrlich. He went to India and he yeah. saw how shitty it was because they were doing the Gandhi plan. Yeah, yeah, interesting. He's like, oh, there's. I conclude there's too many people. We got to call the population. Wow. Yeah. So we're seeing like two sides of the same coin here with uh, with Schumacher and Ehrlich. One of them saying, oh, there's too many people. We got to call the population. The other one is saying, oh, there's too many people. We got to give them small make work jobs. Uh, so they're all busy and happy. And and not let, allow them to develop their economies so that they don't grow too big. Yep. And hold hold, hold them back yep. uh, from developing which is nuts. It's nuts. I mean, that, and that is what literally happened. I mean, in the seventies and eighties, the U S specifically, uh, Ed Markey, the Senator from Massachusetts, they blocked uranium from going to India because mm. they didn't want them to have nuclear power. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll get there too. Yeah. Cause Schumacher, Oh boy. does he, uh, he is not a fan of nuclear energy nope. anyways. So continuing from the standpoint of conventional economics, this sounds like a prescription for starvation. It is not that at all. Schumacher's point was that Gandhi's economics, for all its lack of professional sophistication, or perhaps for that very reason, was nonetheless the product of a wise soul, one which shrewdly insisted on moderation, preservation, and gradualism, on the assumption that to seek progress by releasing cataclysmic social change is only a way to demoralize the many and make them the helpless dependents of the rich and the expert few. And even then, it may not be a way to feed the hungry. Gandhi's economics started and finished with people, with their need for strong morale and their desire to be self-determining. Objectives which headlong development can only thwart. As Schumacher points out, poor countries slip and are pushed into the adoption of production methods and consumption standards, which destroy the possibilities of self-reliance and self-help. The results are unintentional neocolonialism and hopelessness. Rozak concludes the introduction, And what sort of science is it that must, for the sake of its predictive success, hope and pray that people will never be their better selves, but always be greedy social idiots with nothing finer to do than getting and spending, getting and spending? It is, as Schumacher tells us, when the available spiritual space is not filled by some higher motivations, then it will necessarily be filled by something lower, by the small, mean, calculating attitude to life, which is rationalized by the economic calculus. If that is so, then we need a nobler economics that is not afraid to discuss spirit and conscience, 
moral purpose, and the meaning of life. An economics that aims to educate and elevate people, not merely to measure their low-grade behavior. Here it is. And so we are introduced to Small is Beautiful. Like a big theme of this book, I'd say the backbone of his ideology is this Buddhist economics, right? Yeah. Um, the end of the intro explains how he's trying to blend religion and, and, and philosophy with an economic policy. I think Schumacher's main contention is that economics is kind of void of any sort of philosophical or religious or spirituality. So Buddhist economics is sort of the antidote to that, Yeah. right? Yep. So I'm going to play this clip where Schumacher is sort of responding to, he, he was speaking at a conference and uh, here he's taking a question from the audience and he, he kind of, in his own words, explains what Buddhist economics is. So let's, let's give that a listen. Why do you believe Buddhist economics will work in the West? <laughs> Oh, well, the West is just as uh, much capable of common sense as anybody else. <laughs> it's got to work. We've got to come to something more rational than what we've got now. And if we don't do it deliberately, it'll be forced upon us through, through uh, the facts of the universe. We can't go on building buildings like this. <laughs> I'm... I'm delighted with the applause from the architect. He can tell us more about it, but uh, to get into a phase where you carefully exclude all natural light and air, uh, and to have so many of these buildings at a point when we are moving into a more and more insistent energy shortage, and this is quite a thing. Yes, the energy shortage, it's quite, quite certainly a thing, isn't it? And isn't having no windows like much better for energy efficiency? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you at least pack all the heat in there. All these things that are supposedly good now, right? Yeah. No, buildings are bad. So we'll have to adopt quite different principles of in our thinking, namely that there is no 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 virtue, no value in maximizing consumption. You want to maximize satisfactions. And you want to get your satisfactions with a minimum of consumption to still get them. Now, this is what the voluntary simplicity movement in this country are beginning to discover. They, they're not uh, dour-faced Puritans. On the contrary, they say, God, I'm all burdened with all this clutter. In order to maintain this clutter, I have to make a big income. So I'm in the rat race. If I get rid of the clutter, I can get out of the rat race. And I can have a job, um, a modest job, which is enough to keep me going. And I'm a free person compared with what I was before. Yeah, I feel like the show Hoarders is a small as beautiful psyop to, <laughs> to get people to feel guilty about having things in their house. Yeah, or 
One I always think about is the lady in the labyrinth at the end, when she gets to the very end of the, the labyrinth and she's about to get to the castle. Yeah. There's that one lady who's got all this stuff piled on her and she's like, oh, don't you want your, your toys and your little dolly and your books and your... Oh, your little bunny rabbit. You like your little bunny rabbit, don't you? Yes, yes, yes. There you go. Oh, and there's Betsy Boo. You remember Betsy Boo, don't you? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, don't Not you want all these things? And it, it, that really does feel like one of these... She was a Schumacher and yeah. British agent. Well, it's sort of like the the boogeyman that, that the Schumacherians create in their minds is somebody who's just a hoarder, clutterer. Yeah. But what I think what this really appeals to is people who become rich and then kind of feel guilty about it. They feel guilty about all their stuff and they want to minimize and live like yeah. this ascetic lifestyle. Yep. There's an excellent group in, in California whom I encountered, a group of Quakers who perhaps a bit sardonically call themselves the Earth Quakers. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway... You could see why people like him so much. He throws in these little like charming. He's like he's he's tickled by himself, and, yeah. and people they they find it very. Charming. He's like Buddhist uh, Buddhist economics Yoda. Yeah, <laughs> they want to get back to the earth. Of of course they're middle class, but they go around to their friends, Quaker friends, and say, "Well, you're now fifty five. Uh, are you looking forward to your retirement?" Yes, I'm looking forward to my retirement. Uh, what do you want to do when you're tired? Oh, well, then I'll dig my garden and do this and that. And then they say, why don't you do it now? What are you waiting for? And this comes as quite a shock. You know, they'd never thought about it. They say, hey, yes, actually, I can do it now, you see. And they rid themselves of all this clutter and find that they can, even at 55, retire, uh, uh, of course, with a very much smaller pension, or perhaps no pension at all, but they'll survive. Now, this is an interesting movement. This is a reorientation towards what uh, I call Buddhist economics. I mean, I might have called it Christian economics, but then no one would have read it. I think it's pretty clear to see who he's appealing to here, right? Is yeah. that you're not going to walk up to lower class, lower middle class person and say, don't you want less out of life? Don't you want, don't, don't you think you have too much stuff? You're just bogged down by all your stuff. Most people don't feel that way. I don't think. I think most people will say, "You know what? No, I, I'm, I'm striving for more and better, not to yeah. accumulate more, but to for a better life, right?" And yeah. this idea that, oh, you know what? I have enough. My third car and my sixth house and my boat and my yacht—all these things are not making me a happier person. I'd like strangely yeah. enough, I'm not. None of this stuff is making me happier. That's why economics is, doesn't work. We need to return to a, and this is where you see the blend of this sort of re religious ideology, this spirituality. He says Buddhism, Buddhism. He then he mentions Christianity and whatnot. But yeah, well, yeah, I want to harken back to your consumerism documentary, which is on YouTube on the Space Commune YouTube channel, and you have a, a great clip from one of the big proponents of degrowth, some European lady. Yeah. And she's saying, she is describing the malaise of being like upper middle class or, you know, lower high class where you're, you're in that zone where you have like a second house and a second car and you know, you're just like, oh, but it doesn't make me happier. I just keep getting richer, but I'm not getting happier. Yeah. 
high level of income, we have another car, we have a third house. Within a couple of months, we get used to that. So our initial increase in happiness is actually lost. And that's a problem that most most people do not have. Yeah, exactly. The vast majority of people do not have that problem. Right. Well, I think people refer to that or used to refer to that as first world problems. Yeah. And uh, Weird Al made a whole video, uh, a song about it. That's right. <laughs> We're, it, yeah, the joke is that, oh, first world problem, you know, like you're complaining about something that most of most people in the world would kill, for kill to have. Yeah. yeah. To be rich is glorious. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in researching and preparing for this podcast, we came across an article written by a historian, academic guy named Sam Weissman, who has like a little website about history. He had a, a nice write-up, and I, I would just like to read some of that. So he says, Schumacher's impact was not limited to popular movements and startups. For a time, these ideas drove national dialogue. Swan, who co-founded the Schumacher Center, uh, Robert Swan, who he's referring to, Swan helped coordinate the Smallest Beautiful Book Tour, which brought Schumacher to America. Despite high-level endorsements, concert hall audiences, and bestsellers, however, his ideas did not drive national action. Big surprise, huh? <laughs> President Carter, infamous for his condemnation of consumerism, was well aware of the limits to growth as articulated by Schumacher and the Club of Rome. Sociologist Amitei Atzoni identified the president's mandate. At this time, 31% of Americans were anti-growth and 39% were highly uncertain. On March 22, 1976, President Jimmy Carter hosted Schumacher in the Oval Office. Democratic Senators Lee Metcalf and James Aborzek followed up the president, urging that the government should instead be encouraging the development of those approaches that offer real long-term solutions to our environmental, social, and energy problems. One year later, California Governor Jerry Brown spoke at the economist's funeral. Schumacher's legacy seemed secured when Ronald Reagan railed against inappropriate scale. Bigness robs the average citizen of his rightful voice, Reagan claimed as a radio commentator in 1976. Despite cuts within the government, the pendulum swung towards consumerism and unrestricted capital during the Reagan administration. As Schumacher faded from national attention, critics and supporters alike wondered if his call to put our inner house in order was enough for radical change. Schumacher is kind of the Kurt Cobain of the 70s Malthusian Buddhist back to the land movement. Because he died, he barely was alive for his popularity. He's probably more popular now than he was then, even. Paul Ehrlich had got to be, he, he was alive. He got to enjoy the the height of his success. He went on The Tonight Show constantly. He did all kinds of high-profile publicity stunts. And now he got to be so wrong so many times that, you know, it's kind of like uh, the Rolling Stones or something like that. It's like, uh, you know, he's still, he's 80 years old now. He's still saying, oh, you know, any day now, something bad's going to happen because of our population. And Schumacher, on the other hand, he, he wrote this book. It was a wild success. And then he died in 1977. And nobody got to hear him follow up on the events of the, of the day. And so he gets to kind of be preserved as this perfect voice of reason from the 70s 
from hmm. the past. Hmm. So in this in this article, there's a clip of uh, of President Carter giving a, an address about consumerism, and it's very kind of schmaltzy, and I, it's interesting to listen to because it kind of gives a context of where the United States psyche was at the time, and this was, I believe, right after he spoke to Schumacher. You can hear you can hear Jimmy Carter's you can hear Schumacher's influence on Jimmy Carter in this in this video. So. The music is very schmaltzy and it's trying to get you to feel a certain way, but, you know, I, I think that kind of adds to it, but let me just play it. I want to talk to you right now about a fundamental threat to American democracy. I do not mean our political and civil liberties. They will endure. These changes did not happen overnight. They've come upon us gradually over the last generation years that were filled with shocks and tragedy. The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. It is a crisis. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose. For our nation. I think that's kind of interesting that he's he's saying that there's a loss of meaning in our lives, mm. which, you know, you and I were not alive in the 70s, but I guess at that time there was sort of a loss of, of meaning in people's lives. And you can see where Schumacher is uh, inserting himself to say, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'll sell you some meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Let's think about what was going on then. So you had the Vietnam War. Yeah. Uh, you had the energy crisis, which happened around that time. Right. You had all these hippies. You know, that was the, the dominant cultural movement, this fascination with the East. And I wonder if even he's not, he's not necessarily creating a movement. He's just kind of di looking around at the problems of the time. Right. And synthesizing it. I think that was the power of it at the time. Right. Yes. Yeah, sort of tapping it. Yeah. Tapping into an anxiety that existed of people, a nation of people who, you know, was thrust into this cold war era and saying like, no, we're the best. We, we won world war two. Um, and this is how life is from now on. And a lot of people feeling like, so this is it. Yeah. This is all there is to it. Yeah. And there was probably the biggest, one of the biggest jumps in modernization at this time, because, you know, we had the, the, the baby boom, the, the wartime economy was transferred into, this productivist economy in the fifties, yeah. and that's this is when nuclear energy, nu nuclear energy after nineteen eighty, nuclear. I think there's only been two or three nuclear power plants built in the United States. Yeah. So in the seventies, there's this energy abundance happening. The people that had been railing against oil their whole life, they were suddenly realizing, oh my God, nuclear energy is going to replace all this stuff. We have to, we have to kill all this big stuff because. Things are just moving way too fast, oh, yeah, and yeah. they don't understand. And they right. they retreat into superstition, and this this kind of mysticism. Yeah, you know the the rate of change, right, was accelerating. There was this like huge acceleration. That's why the population bomb seemed like, oh my god, this maybe there's some truth to this because the population was growing at this exponential rate. Yeah, that people were like. Oh, this is like unheard of in human history of having this many people. What was it? 3 billion at that point. And they were like, yeah. Oh my God, that's, that's incredible. That's 
and they were scared. People who didn't know what that meant for the future. They were, it was a ripe opportunity for Malthusianism. Let's just say that. Yeah. We've always believed in something called progress. We've always had a faith that the days of our children would be better than our own. Our people are losing that faith. Not only in government itself, but in the ability as citizens to serve as the ultimate rulers and shapers of our democracy. As a people, we know our past and we are proud of it. Our progress has been part of the living history of America, even the world. Too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. Oh my God. You know, the funny thing too is um, he equates self-consumption with self-indulgence. And uh, as we were talking before, right, I think most people, a large portion of people in our country and the vast majority of the people in the rest of the world would not equate those two things, right? Like yeah. consumption is self-indulgence. No, consumption is actually necessary. Survival. For living. Yeah, and that, and that consumption is actually a good thing. Yeah, and this is the guy that during the energy crisis, he told people to just put on a sweater. Yeah. You know, right. He wants you to feel bad for consuming because right. you're not doing your patriotic duty by conserving. Right. But we've discovered that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. We've learned that piling up material goods cannot fill the emptiness of lives which have no confidence or purpose. The symptoms of this crisis of the American spirit are all around us. This is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the truth and it is a warning. It's not a message of happiness. Well, good thing we have Buddhist economics, which are the economics of happiness. <laughs> One of the big themes in the book is like we've been talking about scale, size, big, big is bad, small is beautiful, right? And decentralization too. So I'm, I'm just going to read a short passage from part four, the chapter titled Organization and Ownership Towards a Theory of Large Scale Organization. Schumacher writes, in any organization, large or small, there must be a certain clarity of orderliness. If things fall into disorder, nothing can be accomplished. Yet orderliness as such is static and lifeless. So there must be plenty of elbow room and scope for breaking through the established order to do things never done before, never anticipated by the guardians of orderliness the new, unpredicted, and unpredictable outcomes of a man's creative idea. Therefore, any organization has to strive continuously for the orderliness of order and the disorderliness of creative freedom. And the specific danger inherent in large-scale organization is that its natural bias and tendency favor order at the expense of creative freedom. 
we can associate many further pairs of opposites with this basic pair of order and freedom. Centralization is mainly an idea of order. Decentralization, one of freedom. The man of order is typically an accountant and generally the administrator, while the man of creative freedom is the entrepreneur. Order requires intelligence and is conductive to efficiency, while freedom calls for and opens the door to intuition and leads to innovation. So I think this goes back to what we were talking about with anarchism, right? We're at the end of history and nothing more needs to be built. At this point, everything just needs to be managed. Yep. I think it's very revealing that he only refers to the man, the administrator, the accountant, or the entrepreneur. What about the people who build things, right? The yep. people who uh, are working the factories and and turn the knobs and cut the wood and you know build hammer the nails build things uh they're they're totally out of this equation this is in a post industrial world where everything just kind of has to be maintained and then yeah. there's the, the there's the bean counters and then there's the the anarchist artists <laughs> yeah uh, and and those are the only two options yeah and you can see with the the intermittent tool plan that in that in that world what Schumacher is talking about is full employment his vision for the world is where everyone has to work because all we have available to us are these intermediate tools. So everyone has to work for subsistence. So everyone's an entrepreneur in that scenario. We don't need accountants anymore because everyone will literally be doing their own thing right. all the time to try to survive. Right. So we should talk about why this book is important, right? One of the biggest reasons is because of its influence. Not a lot of people today probably even know what this book is, but they should know that it was a huge influence on very specific people, such as Prince Charles, now King Charles, uh, Jimmy Carter, who we just talked about, Bill McKibben, who's one of the leading what they call deep green ecologists. Mm. He's the founder of 350.org which is a just a prominent environmentalist organization that wants to shut down all industry, block all pipelines. Right, right. Force everyone onto electricity that is scarce. So we found this uh we found this Vanity Fair article uh, about King Charles. I'm sorry, he at the time he was Prince Charles. Oh, this is only from last year actually. Called the fascinating backstory of King Charles the third in his sometimes controversial environmental crusading. So <laughs> he's he's kind of famous for being envi an environmentalist. Why is it controversial? Why is it controversial? What could he say that's possibly? You know, he just wants it to be clean, right? Well, let me let me read a few passages from this uh, from this Vanity Fair article. So Charles, on the other hand, largely moved away from his father's interest in population control when he found another set of mentors and started to embrace a much broader vision of what counts as an environmental concern. So his father, of course, famous for saying he wants to be, he would love to be reincarnated as a disease to destroy the human population, right? Yeah. Well, he was a vulgar Malthusian. Vulgar Malthusian is a good way. And this next, this next generation is the un, the not vulgar Malthusian. They're a little bit more proper about. They it. say, "I believe in planetary limits, right? Not live outside of our planetary limits," which inherently means that there's less people. But they don't actually say that. So you could say that Philip, Charles' father, he was uh, a fan of Paul Ehrlich's population bomb. Yeah. Whereas 
King Charles is uh, a fan of E.F. Schumacher's work, which is a little less less vulgar in its Malthusianism. Yeah, it's more British. More <laughs> yeah. polite. Yes, that's right. It's that, that British politeness, right? In 1973, the heterodox economist E.F. Schumacher released his book, Small's Beautiful, a study of economics as if people mattered, and it made its way to Charles' hands. By the end of the year, Schumacher visited the royals at Buckingham Palace, and Charles became a committed supporter of his ideas and institutions. So I think that, you know, it's pretty it's pretty important to know the king now, the king of England, the, the British royal family that has way too much say in the affairs of the world, it was co- very influenced by E.F. Schumacher, which makes this a very important book no, to understand. This is a renegade anarchist ideology, yeah. okay? It's very <laughs> underdog. Yeah. On, you know, the king of England is not influential, okay? Schumacher's work, which Charles has quoted in speeches for decades, has retained his relevance in the 21st century. He wrote about getting beyond GDP growth, living within limits of the planet, and reorganizing economic activity such that people on the planet can truly thrive said Jared Spears, Director of Communications and Resources at the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. Schumacher's message was explicitly anti-fossil fuel because he was writing against the backdrop of the oil crisis and shortages of the 1970s. So another reason this book is very important is because, and we've alluded to this already, is that it's a, a precursor to the degrowth movement. So here's a clip from the Schumacher Center for new economics from a, only about four months ago, where some people who are uh, involved with the center have a discussion, sort of a retrospective on the book, Small is Beautiful. And here is Stuart Wallace, chair of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. Let's hear what he has to say. And there's also, I think, growing clarity on the types of policies needed to achieve this type of economy. And that's type of economy, all those things I've been talking about fit so closely with what Fritz Schumacher was saying all those time 50 years ago. And we need to do policy making very differently. Now, those goals and needs, as both Ruth and John have said, they're not new. They're part of indigenous wisdom of the centuries. They appear in the texts of many faiths. And when you... Um, Vitally, when you talk to people across the world about what they want in their lives, this is what you hear. You hear these things. So these are rooted in something that's been around for centuries. But what is growing is the level of demand for these, this type of economy, the level of awareness, the level of agreement, and the willingness to act together to get it. That's the change I see. And... It doesn't matter whether you call it a well-being economy, a donut economy, um, a degrowth economy, a regenerative economy, um, or Ubuntu, or Buenbria. They're coming up with similar goals, similar values, similar principles. So in this clip, we can hear he's, he lists off a bunch of a bunch of different things, right? He says it doesn't matter what you, what you call it, well-being economy, donut economy, degrowth economy, regenerative economy, Ubuntu or bien vivir. It's all the same thing, right? It's all the same thing. So all these different movements kind of have their root in this book. Yep. So what was the point of writing this book, right? I think this is a really important thing to discuss. We've 
we've discussed what it is, who who it's written for, the audience it's written for, the historical context of the moment that it was being written in and what anxieties it was seizing upon and what it's grown into today, yeah. the lineage of it. But what is the actual point of this book? And I think that there is sort of a two-pronged thing where it's addressing it's addressing the first world in a certain way and it's addressing the third world in a certain way. And I would say the way it's addressing the first world is to propagandize against nuclear energy and nationalizing industry. Yep. There's a whole chapter in this book. So right smack dab in the center of this book, the very center of this book, I can open it up and right down the crack in the middle, <laughs> it opens to chapter four, which is nuclear energy, salvation or damnation. So I'll read a short passage from that. Of all the changes introduced by man into the household of nature, large-scale nuclear fission is undoubtedly the most dangerous and profound. As a result, ionizing radiation has become the most serious agent of pollution of the environment and the greatest threat to man's survival on Earth. The attention of the layman, not surprisingly, has been captured by the atom bomb, although there is at least a chance that it may never be used again. The danger to humanity created by the so-called peaceful users of atomic energy may be much greater. So he's saying that new, using nuclear energy may be worse than the atom bomb. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, backwards. That's a pretty bold statement to make hmm. there. There could be indeed no clearer example of the prevailing dictatorship of economics. Whether to build conventional power stations based on coal or oil or nuclear stations is being decided on economic grounds with perhaps a small element of regard for social consequences that might arise from an overly speedy curtailment of the coal industry. So what he's saying here is that uh, maybe we shouldn't roll back our coal so quickly and replace it with nuclear. Yeah. Which is a very funny thing, I think, coming from a, so a so-called environmentalist who also happened to be on the board of the coal industry, right? Well, it's very nuanced, you see. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's no you would personal, never understand. I'm sure there's no personal bias there. <laughs> I mean, he would be happy today to hear Germany, you know, shutting down its nuclear plants in favor of coal, right? It's a wonderful thing. Close your nuclear plants, open coal plants, outsource all your industry. That's small is beautiful economics. Yeah, there you go. There you go. People matter in Germany. People, yes, yeah, so the people. That's what we care about is the people. But that nuclear fission represents an incredible, incomparable, and unique hazard for human life does not enter any calculation and is never mentioned. People whose business it is to judge hazards, the insurance companies, are recalcitrant to insure nuclear power stations anywhere in the world for third-party risk, with the result that special legislation has had to be passed whereby the state accepts big liabilities. Yet, uninsured or not, the hazard remains. And such is the thraldom of the religion of economics that the only question that appears to interest either governments or the public is whether it pays. That sounds a lot like RFK Jr. <laughs> I know. It it really does. It it really does. It's the these the anti nuclear advocates, which RFK says he's not one, but and and he funny enough says, Oh, he's for it if it if it if it pays. He's also upset that it can't be insured, right? By exactly. Wall Street and Lloyd's of London, right? Exactly. It's the, it's the same arguments that we hear today, right? It, it, 
somebody like like Schumacher really seeded these ideas in people who thought that this book was like tremendous, a breakthrough, right? Yeah. He seeded these ideas about nuclear energy that are just completely, complete bullshit. And we still see these lies being pushed today, that it's uninsurable, which is not true, that it's dangerous, which is not true. It's it's literally the safest form of energy we have on planet Earth. And we've been doing it for how many years now? Over 50 years. And yeah. the, the death toll is minuscule compared to any other any other form of energy. Even when things go wrong with nuclear energy, when we see Fukushima or Chernobyl, the amount of destruction that happens is just is minuscule. It's meaningless. It's minuscule. It's it's so manageable. Well, and also it has the such a small amount of mining that's required to get the the fuel that you need, mm-hmm. and just requires less uh, less jockeying for resources. And that's why China is building 150 of them. Yeah. Because it's it's what powerful countries do to protect their energy supply is that they build nuclear plants because it's an incredibly dense form of energy that can pow- that can take care of billions of people. Right, right. And what we see now is the two countries that are building out the most nuclear, both domestically and helping the rest of the world internationally develop their nuclear capacity. Are Russia and China? Yeah, for some reason they uh, they did not uh, heed the warnings of Schumacher, <laughs> and they're dangerously uh, flirting with disaster. Yeah, right. Well, what else do those two countries have in common? Is that they've both nationalized their industries, yeah. their energy industries. Therefore, they're able to produce nuclear energy power plants at the rate that they are. Because it requires a lot of coordination. It requires big industry. It requires uh, a lot of people involved. It requires a lot of resources. And, you know, you, you can't get that from a small, local, bespoke, artisanal economy, that, which yeah. is what the Schumacherites are always petitioning for, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you literally cannot have, you cannot build out robust uh, nuclear fleets with a small is beautiful mindset. Yeah. It just does not work. You need big nationalized industry to make it work. Yep. You need industry that is not controlled by a small group of people who with private interests. You need the interests of entire nations congealed into one centralized power to be able to pull something like that off. Yeah. Yeah, you really need the cooperation of a state, a large state entity to build nuclear correctly. Yeah. And there's also a multiplier effect because when you have big sources of energy, you have big industry, then the then you have multiplier effects where you're employing lots of people with high intensity jobs where they don't have to wor- necessarily work as much as if everyone has a low intensity job. You know, Schumacher laments at one point about how the percentage of people farming in the United States, which at the time was the most industrialized country, the percentage of people farming plummeted in the United States because what we got were high intensity tools that allowed people to produce way more food with way less work and way less backbreaking human labor. Right, right. And 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 they advocate for the exact opposite in this book. This is they Gandhi and Schumacher and this whole movement of people, the degrowth movement, uh, this is what they want is they want to send people back to the farm. Yeah. 
And they call it appropriate technology. Right, we'll right. talk about that in a little bit. They want to send people back to the farm or they want to prevent them from leaving there in the first place, which is what a lot of people in the third world or as people say, the global south now want to do. They want to not ha spend their whole life become, being farming peasants. They want to do they want to do bigger and better things with their life. And yep. I think they have every right to. So here's another clip from this round table that I just mentioned. Uh, this time we're going to hear from Ruth Potts, who is the head of regenerative economics at, at Schumacher College in the United Kingdom. So that's another Schumacher Institute based in in England. So let's let's hear what she has to say. Schumacher wasn't interested in small per se. He was interested in appropriate scale. And not only appropriate scale, but also democratic ownership. One of the things that struck me rereading for, for rereading for today's conversation was the real emphasis he paid he played on um placed on participation. Um, so when he talks about nationalized industries, he's clear to argue that nationalization doesn't necessarily need to be nationwide, but rather a collaboration of, or collaborative of smaller democratically controlled enterprises. Um, he accepts the value of small private enterprise, but according to Schumacher, large scale enterprise in large scale enterprise, private ownership is a fiction for the purpose of enabling functionless owners to live parasitically on the labors of others. And I don't think we have to think too hard for examples of that today. So think again of Amazon, of Walmart, of Facebook, all delivering private affluence and public squalor. Um, and this giganticism that, that Schumacher warned us about has left us alienated and alone with rising levels of inequality, lower levels of trust and community, and increased loneliness and depression. But what and what big can't provide, I think, and this is, I think, Schumacher's fundamental insight, which I think John spoke to to a degree, is that what Schumacher instinctively re recognized was the value of relationship. And what scale does is brings us into contact with the human, with one another, with the natural world we're part of. It puts us into touch with the consequences of our actions and brings us into relationships of care and maintenance. The the greatest irony that I can think of as I'm watching this is that this woman is sitting on YouTube, on Zoom, on the internet, talking to people from all over the world, and she's saying, no, you know what? These big enterprises are not good. We need to just interface with the people who are right in front of us. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? So in her wor in her ideal world, she wouldn't even be doing what she's doing. And this spills over into the realm of work too. One of the recurrent themes in the book is how modern organizations strip the satisfaction out of work, making the worker no more than an anonymous cog in a huge machine. Skill was no longer um, important and nor was the quality of human relationship. Um, so in the in the era of the gig economy, I see we I think we can see how that has has gone even further today. But for Schumacher, drawing on the Buddhist thought that John mentioned, work should be part of the good life itself. So through work, we find the cultivation of to Schumacher, we find the cultivation of friendship. Um, good work in, in, enables us to enjoy the arts. We're able to participate usefully. We're able to care for others. I just want to say, with, she mentions the gig economy. 
And the gig economy is exactly what a modern version of appropriate technology mm. where it enables people to do very low intensity work, like deliver, deliver food or drive people around with your car and do, do all these like little micro tasks. Yeah. Micro transactions. Yeah. And he would, he would probably look at the, the gig economy companies like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash say, oh, well, they're just much too big. You need, you need to make decentralized networks of micro gig economy local apps or something. Yeah. But it's still the same exact thing. You're doing bullshit work that a robot should be doing. Of course. Yeah. And the pursuit of self-fulfillment happens through and the realm of work and the realm of realm of civic civic participation even. Um, so for Schumacher, the purpose of the economy there was enabling the fulfillment of others. Um where th these are the examples of the things that really matter, not the acquisition of goods beyond basic needs. I, so, yeah, I think what Schumacher, the, what these people all believe is that co-ops and, and local local shops are just the answer to all these problems and that Amazon is big and bad and we have to get rid of it and that it, as long as we have local, shop local co-ops, that yeah. that's going to be the solution to the problems. I mean, number one, that's never going to happen. We're not going to go back to that. I mean, these I, these people really do want to roll roll history and progress back to uh, like a neo feudal age where everyone, you know, sort of this ren Renaissance fair <laughs> fantasy where everyone, oh, I just go to the market and I get some eggs and then I go home and you know put on my apron and. No one ever fights. No one. No one ever has disagreement. Right. Right. Imagine if you. No one has. No one has modern medicine or any of the technology where you need lots of people in order to lots, create it. That's a big part of it. Yeah. You, you die at thirty-five. What about cars? I mean, you can't just. You make local cars. Would you? How would you make a local car? Well, it's a, it has to be appropriate technology, so it'd be like a friend, Fred Flintstone car. <laughs> Uh, yeah, these people are just, I feel like you ask, you can just ask like really surface level questions of how all this, how their ideology would play out and work in real life. And it just totally falls apart. Like yep. these people are in la la land. They are in head in the clouds. And to be as fair as I can to these people, I think the, a lot of them mean well, <laughs> they, I agree. They mean well. And they want the world to be better. They just have no conception of how it could be better, of how to get from point A to point B. And they've become suckers for for this bullshit ideology. And Schumacher is, I, I think he is a scam artist. I think he is a talented, a very talented huckster. Yeah. Snake oil. Supply. Grifter. A grifter, yeah. I think he's a grifter. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think where this gets... Uh... Where this gets evil is with when you think about the third world. Yeah, and the organization that he started to this day is pushing low intensity tools on the third world, right, and preventing them from developing in a big way where they can actually imagine if if people in Africa could have the standard of living of the United States, right? You know, that's Barack Obama's worst nightmare. I know. Well, a big so yeah. The the second part of like what this book is all about, right, is okay. This idea of rolling back technological progress in the first world and getting rid of all your things, 
which is, you know, it's ridiculous pie in the sky. But the I think the real point of this book was to make sure that these tenderhearted folks who fall for this kind of stuff are okay with the idea of people in the third world not being able to develop their countries. Exactly. <laughs> he tries to paint it as, oh, they need appropriate technology. That if you give the if you give the rural folks in these countries machinery that is too complex, that it's going to be useless for them. And they need to evolve slowly and have appropriate technologies. Yeah. Like solar panels, right? Right. You're de you're destroying your, their culture if you right. give them nuclear energy, but solar panels do not destroy their culture. Solar yes. panels, you know, they can they can uh, make it culturally appropriate to have a solar panel. That's it. that is exactly it, and it is this like woke third worldism. Yeah. That they perpetuate and say, and that's how they use the script now to say, oh, this is that's colonialism. What China and Russia are doing is is neo-colonialism because they're bringing this technology or even if the West wanted to bring technology to these people who they're not ready for it. Yeah. They're not ready for it. Roads, hospitals. They don't want it. Oh, it's it's an addiction. You're getting them addicted to the sickness that we have here in the West, which is to things that we don't need that don't make us any happier. Yeah. And it just clogs up the environment. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and what our buddy Jasper Mochogu said on that recent podcast that we had him on, he was talking about how the stuff that they do have in Africa, everyone has a cell phone, everyone has a little battery a little and a little solar panel, yeah, and they can charge up their phone, and, the, and they have internet access. So they get the thing that we all are, associate with, oh, everyone in the West, everyone in the United States just has their head down, they're playing with their phone all day. They have that too, but they don't have any of the benefits of, you know, abundant food, having air conditioning, refrigeration, yeah. house. You know, they just, they have the phone, they have the shittiest part of modernity, which is the, the cell phone addiction. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and I think, I think that that operates as a way to keep people in those areas sort of ideologically tapped into this bullshit as well, because if it works in the first world... I, I don't think I, I am not, I've never been to the third world. I don't know, but I have the impression it doesn't work quite as well in the third world, Yeah, but it certainly does work on some people. I mean, you see some people on Twitter from African countries protesting fossil fuel yeah. and then Westerners get the impression that, okay, they're, they believe the same thing that we're pummeled in the, yeah. in the brain with. And yeah. And it's documented that that social media in the third world is a tool of regime change. Yeah. And it's used by intelligence agencies. They make sock puppet accounts. They do all kinds of things. The stuff that we we say about Russiagate, I think is actually a lot more true in the third world. Uh, there's a lot less competing media. Yeah. And, you know, it's documented. They, do, they certainly try to use it as a tool of regime change and for color revolutions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and But that's appropriate technology. It's very small. You know, your phone is small. It can fit in your pocket. Yeah. The 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 uh, solar panel on your on your grass hut is very small, so it's very beautiful. It's very appropriate. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's why everyone celebrated Arab Spring. You remember how people used to act like social media, like, oh, this one post is going to set off a revolution. Yeah. This one post, everyone has the chance to infuse their post with that 
that viral. I feel like that sentiment has never gone away. That everyone thinks that their one tweet is going to set off the revolution. Yeah. Or their one hashtag. And it was it was proven. The Arab Spring was all like an astroturfed color revolution that yeah. was boosted by the social media networks. Yeah. But people still believe, oh, you know, it just just catch fire on the right day. Yeah. And then things will change. You just have to ca- capture their, you know, and you know what? Hearts and minds, right? They always say you have to capture hearts and minds. And I think that that is true. And I think that that's what Schumacher successfully did. Yeah. I think he successfully captured hearts and minds of a very particular subset of people yep. who may trend towards caring about the rest of the world or their fellow man, but funnels them into this ideology where they kind of feel guilty about their ecological footprint, consuming too much and becoming, you know, upper middle class people or, or, or higher income. And so kind of uses a little bit of that guilt. And, and this is where I think it goes back to a religion, right? It, it becomes this sort of religion for people where they, they say, you know what, I, I'm bad. I am so bad. And I need to confess and I need to do better. I want to do good. You know, his other, I think he has another book called Good Work. Mm. You know, it's all about goodness, right? They want, they want forgiveness. And, and that's what Gandhi was a religious figure as well. So yeah, I, I, it makes sense that he seized on this opportunity for the, the void that was created for when we entered into sort of a secular point in human history with the USSR and the USA coming out of World War II, this secular period where people people's needs were a lot of people's needs were met in the West. There was like a sort of post-war boom, but they felt very empty about it. It was yeah. almost like they, they killed God. Right. Mm. Uh, and I think there was also a rebellion to how religion was used in the past to guilt, shame and control people. And, and there was an, a sort of a mini enlightened population that said, we don't need religion. We're, we're to the point of we're, we're past that. But without realizing that even if you don't need a formal religion like you had in the past, you still need a reason. Human beings need a reason to live, right? And Schumacher was like, well, I can seize on that human need and I can channel it into what is convenient for the British royal family. Yeah. <laughs> and the ruling class, right? Yeah, and he comes from very elite circles. Like he went, He went to some really fancy college. I can't remember the name of it, but... He mingled with the Astor family. Oxford, right? Yeah, I think that was Oxford it. University. Yeah, he mingled with the Astor family there, and then he's he's buddies with Keynes. Keynes named him as his intellectual descendant, basically on his deathbed. So this is a very clever person who, you know, is part of, is part of the elite, and he, because he was clever enough to kind of claw his way into it. He 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 didn't come from a incredibly influential family, but. He was able to get into those those spots and impress really powerful people. Yeah. You know, he was, what, head of the Soil Association? The Blood and Soil Association. <laughs> the Blood and Soil Association. So that was founded in 1946 by a few people, including a fascist named Jorian Jenks, co-founded the Soil Association. Jenks was a member of the British Union of Fascists, and he served as the agricultural advisor to the party. So, you know, uh, there's some connections here, right? Some connections. Pretty direct. Pretty direct connections uh, to to some schools of thought that, that ain't so great. <laughs> ain't so great. 
So another part of the book, he basically invents regenerative agriculture. But I'm just going to read this quote really quick. To say the least, which is already very much, we must thoroughly understand the problem and begin to see the possibility of a new lifestyle with new methods of production and new patterns of consumption, a lifestyle designed for permanence. To give only three preliminary examples, in agriculture and horticulture, we can interest ourselves in the perfection of production methods which are biologically sound, build up soil fertility, and produce health, beauty, and permanence. Productivity will then look after itself. So that's basically the argument for regenerative agriculture. The production will just take care of itself. Yeah. <laughs> it just has to be beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> just make it beautiful, and then then everything else falls into place. And he, he actually makes the argument later in the book that if we do unpure production methods for food, then it's going to create a malformism. Like there's this... There's a sense of like modernity just is creating malformism. And uh, I wonder where he got those ideas from. <laughs> yeah. I think his friends in uh, the fascist union. The, yeah, maybe in the Soil Association, <laughs> they, uh, the Soil Society, they talked about that. Then you combine that with some other things he said, like he talked about the proper use of land. And he was saying that civilized man has marched across the face of the earth and left a desert in his footprints. The writers of history have seldom noted the importance of land use. They seem to not have recognized the destinies of most of man's empires and civilizations were determined largely by the way land was used. And once again, you know, when you combine the regenerative agriculture, the appropriate technology, and then this land use stuff, if we were to actually support the population that we had with this intermittent technology and with regenerative agriculture, then this land use thing that he's talking about, all the land is going to be used for agriculture. Yeah. It's going to be such low intensity, low quality farming that everyone's going to be on a on a, a farm, you know, farming, digging for potatoes. We're all going back to the farm, baby. Yeah. There's just no way that it could actually support uh, a population. It shows, it shows how this type of thinking, even though it sounds like leftist thinking or whatever, um, it's deeply, deeply reactionary yeah. and wants to send people back in time, basically. Yeah. Back in time. And and who wants that? Who wants that? Is it's not the it's not the working people, the working masses don't want to go back in time. I mean, a lot of them have been brainwashed to think that time things were so much better in the past, right? Yeah. I saw somebody on Twitter a, a, this is sort of the right wing angle of degrowth where they, they post pictures of uh, of feudal, you know, feudal times where it's a colorful painting and it ever, it almost looks cartoonish. And they're like, oh, see, life was so great then. It's like, <laughs> are you stupid? These people are so stupid and naive. They think that some idyllic painting yeah. uh, represents what life was like. Li life is so much better now than it was back then. And they just, they don't, they have no appreciation for that. Life is better, and it can get so much better, too. That's right. If we if we try. That's right. Well, yeah, I think, right, and that's a really good point to make, is that people think life is really bad now. They're convinced that life is really bad now all the time. And rather than, be, rather than focusing on the fact that we can make, it's not as good as it could be. Yeah. And it could be better. And they say, oh, we're in the end times, things are so bad. It's just this really pessimistic outlook. Yeah on on life right and that the, the planet is dying civilization is ending 
it's just it, it's an excuse to not do anything and to just be a baby. Oh, it's all gonna it's all gonna explode. And it's narcissism because people people see in the United States they see this like little you know I do think things are not looking great for the United States, but for the for humanity for humanity's future on the planet things are looking great. Other countries are doing amazing things, and we could join them if we really try. Right. Um, you know, people in our country could benefit too. It's hard to, it's, sometimes it's hard to see how we could talk sense into our government and into our elite power structures, but it's been done before. And, you know, but if you look at the rest of the world, people that are not using the smallest beautiful bullshit, they're doing amazing things. Yeah. Well, I think that the people in that upper middle class sphere are kind of captured yeah. by this ideology and they, they act as like the layer between us and the ruling elites yeah and we don't need to be woken up the the working masses understand all of this stuff inherently it's that layer that that schumacher was going for yeah and that layer today if they're not if they're not already involved in their own co-op potato farming operation you know they're looking they are also looking around at the world and they'll nod their head when they hear me say oh thing amazing things are happening in the rest of the world but they're not looking at China or Russia or the BRICS countries. They're looking at places like Tibet, yeah, Bhutan, yeah, Cuba. They're saying, "Oh, well, these countries—they don't have any industry, and everybody just gets one orange a day, and they meditate all day, and then yeah. they go to bed, and you know, they have a little reading light that uh, is charged up from the solar panel during the day, and they just—they read their little book, and then they go to bed." And that's, that's the day. And they're very happy. What is, what is the, I have no heating. I have no, you knew, you knew exactly what I was, <laughs> I have no heating and I'm happy. I'm, I'm totally fine. I have no heating and, uh, and I'm fine. Totally fine. This is Matthew Ricard, Parisian academic turned Buddhist monk who authored the book Altruism, The Power of Compassion to Change Yourself and the World. Yeah, and that's the propaganda. And that's why when, especially in people on the left that fetishize Cuba, it's disappointing because like Cuba is, is a degrowth case study, not by choice. The people of Cuba wanted to use fertilizer. They wanted to have technology and to have dense fuel that, that they could use to power their civilization. And it got cut off, and you know it's it's not a it's not a success story. It's a it's a deeply terrible thing that's happened to them. Yeah, oh yeah, and and desperation. Yeah, yes. Commune is a media project by two upstate New Yorkers seeking an alternative to the degrowth and deindustrialization paradigm being thrust upon us by the Great Reset Agenda. We love our country, the United States of America, and take inspiration from our revolutionary founding. We want win-win cooperation with Russia and China in developing the world economy for all of humanity and to make America great again. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider joining our Patreon. We also make other content such as documentaries on YouTube and essays you can find on our website at spacecommune.com.